Welcome to Tax and Super Australia's podcast, Tax Wrap, where we share developments, news and insights for all tax practitioners and SMSF professionals. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes and share. We'd love to hear back from you, so send questions and comments, even suggestions for guest speakers, to podcast at taxandsuperaustralia.com.au. Hello listeners, welcome to the Tax Wrap Podcast, episode 164. I'm Steve Burnham, uh, and I'm here today with uh, David Ebden. Hello, Steve. Once again. And we have, as our special guest, we have Simon Dorovich back with us. Uh, Simon is the Assistant Tax Manager at A&A Tax Legal Consulting. Thanks again for coming out, Simon. Uh, my pleasure, Steve. Um, now, last time we had you here, we were talking about FBT, the new things in FBT. Uh, that was a fortnight ago. Uh, people, do you think they've finished their FBT returns yet? Uh, only if they're very, very keen. Uh, in, in my experience, uh, by by this time, uh, I've still got quite a few to, to go. Okay, so they've still got their returns. And uh, David, when, when do people have to uh, to finish these FBT returns? Okay, if they're um, lodging them by themselves, uh, they have to lodge and pay by the 21st of May. Yep. A nice little rhyme there to remember that. That's right. <laughs> um, if they go through a tax agent, um, and assuming they lodge electronically... Uh, it must be lodged by the 25th of June, but payment must be made by the 28th of May. So, Simon, you must still have clients that are scrambling to get advice from you about what to do or, you know, can I claim this, can I claim that? Yeah, that sort of thing. Uh, yeah de- definitely. What's a perennial sort of issue, um, I suppose, vehicles are a thing that people keep coming back to? Yeah, car fringe benefits are certainly one of, if, if not the most common type of of fringe benefit, right. uh, uh, certainly in terms of total expenditure, uh, yep. I, it would be the, the highest. Uh, so I thought perhaps today we could focus on uh, on car fringe benefits. Sure. Uh, Good. W- when is a car fringe benefit provided and uh, if one is provided, then how do you go about valuing it? Yep, yep, okay. Well, what's the, where we start? Uh, well, perhaps let's go through this uh uh, methodically. Yep. Uh, so f- for a car fringe benefit to arise, uh, there needs to be a car. Uh, it, the car needs to be held by a provider. Uh, it needs to be provided to an employee or yep. their associate in respect of employment. Uh, and finally, the car uh, needs to be applied to uh, private use by the employee or their associate, uh, or alternatively, deemed to be available for private use. Okay. Yep. Uh, so if we we step through those one by one, uh, when a car fringe benefit won't be f- provided if the vehicle being provided isn't a car, right? Uh, As in a normal standard vanilla car. If it's uh, like yeah. A- so so car has a specific meaning for uh, income tax and FBT purposes. Mm. Uh, so uh, a car is defined as a motor vehicle that has a carrying capacity of less than one tonne and is designed to carry fewer than nine passengers. Uh, so if, if you look at that definition, you'll see that a motorbike uh, is not a car. Uh, no, a minivan right. that has nine or more seats, uh, again, not a car. Right. Uh, and uh, a ute or a truck with a carrying capacity of one tonne or more, mm. Uh, mm. not a car. So... If th- those types of vehicles are being provided, uh, it uh, may very well give rise to a fringe benefit, yep. t- typically a, a residual fringe benefit, uh, but it won't be a car fringe no. benefit. So, so but nine or less people is uh, the reason? Uh, with a carrying uh, fewer than nine. Fewer than so nine. eight or less. Eight or less. I don't know. Even that's a lot of people if you're trying to say you're trying to get into the drive-in. Uh, <laughs> but um, it's... it's a, Quite generous, but it uh, seems like like a, a large number of people to cram into a car. But uh, but still, if that's what the law says, uh, yeah. So just you know, keep in mind uh, before racing down and assuming that uh, you're dealing with a car fringe benefit. Yep. Uh, check, just check that. Che- yeah. Just make sure it it is actually a car that yeah. that you're dealing with. <laughs> uh, now. The, the next criteria that I mentioned uh, is that the car needs to be held by a provider. Uh, typically, that's the employer. Right, yeah. Uh, so when, when wouldn't that be the case? Uh, for example, uh, if the uh, a short-term lease, so less than 12 weeks, so if uh, the, the employer hires a vehicle for 
10 weeks and provides that to a uh, an employee, uh, that would give rise to a residual fringe benefit rather than, or or an expense payment fringe benefit, potentially, okay. <clears throat> uh, but not a car fringe benefit because the ATO's view is that a, a short-term hire car uh, is not held by the by the provider. No, I see. Yeah, yeah fair enough. Uh, another example, quite a common one, is when the employee owns or leases the car and the employer pays or reimburses car expenses uh, or uh, when an employee... Sorry, an employer pays a fixed car allowance. Right. Uh, those are not car fringe benefits because in those scenarios that I just outlined, it's the employee who holds the car, oh, right. uh, not the the employer or, or other provider. Yep, yep, I see. Uh, then there's potentially no car fringe benefit if the car isn't provided in respect of employment. Uh, and he, here we're looking perhaps potentially as, at uh, a family relationship may be the reason that the car was provided rather than an employment relationship or perhaps because the recipient is a shareholder uh, of the of the company. Uh, That's interesting. So would that be a case where there's a family business, say, and the, the, the dad buys the son who works in the business a car for his 18th birthday or something like that? Um, um, is that the kind of a scenario that we're looking at? Like yeah, if, yeah, If yeah. it's an associate uh, or family member. Yeah, uh, absolutely, p- potentially. Uh, and and here we, we're, we're looking at the interaction between uh, Division 7A, uh, which can apply to payments from a private company, uh, and payment for Division, a, Division 7A purposes uh, can include the provision of an asset right. uh, and fringe benefits tax. Uh, However, typically... Uh, FBT would take precedence over Division 7A. Is that so, right? Okay. So, so in mo- most cases, uh, you'll reach the conclusion uh, in borderline cases that the car is provided in respect of yeah. employment. Yeah, yeah. And, and therefore a fringe benefit. Exactly right. right. Okay, yeah. Uh, though potentially subject to, to an exemption, but yeah, yep. generally speaking, yes, a fringe We're benefit. We're headed in that direction. Uh, now, the, uh, the last thing that I mentioned in... Know, discussing when does a car fringe benefit arise yep. is, of course, uh, private use, whether it's uh, actually used for, applied for private use or, or available for private use, uh, or whether it's deemed to be or taken to be available for private use, right. regardless of how it is actually used. Uh, now, a car will be taken to be available for private use where it's garaged or kept at or near the place of residence of an employee or an associate. Uh, And that's uh, even if the place of residence is also the place of business. Uh, So there was a case where uh, somebody uh, worked worked from home uh, and they obviously parked their their car there because that's where they both worked and lived. Uh, and tried to argue that the car wasn't available for private use because it was kept at the employer's business premises. Right. Uh, which I thought which just was... just happened to be the, where they lived. It <laughs> happened to be uh, <laughs> worth a go. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, the ATO said, yes, but it's also near your uh, private premises. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and therefore, the car was deemed to be available for use. Do they, it's, it's begs, not begs the question, but it raises a question in my mind, how, what's the distance? What, how, what's the near, how far does your residence have to be away? I know it's probably not spelled out in the legislation, but it's a, just an interesting question to, to ask yourself. Yeah, th- there's no specific number that the ATO gives, yeah. but uh, you know, my guidance would be uh, it, it needs to be a bit of a pain to, to walk it. Oh, yeah, it needs okay, to be yeah. quite inconvenient. <laughs> All right, that's a good, good uh, guidance. A bit of a pain. All right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Uh, and uh, there is uh, another way that a car can be taken to be available for private use, uh, and that's when the car is not at the employer's business premises, and either the employee or an associate is entitled to use the car for private purposes or the employee or an associate has custody and control of the car and is not performing employment duties. So it can be quite challenging to 
uh, reduce the number of days that uh, a car is considered not to be deemed to be available for, for yeah, private yeah. use. Uh, my recommendation is uh, when an employee is travelling for an extended period of time, because that's often the uh, a scenario where uh, clearly they they won't be using the the vehicle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If they fly to uh, fly overseas for business yeah, for a few yep. weeks. Yep. Uh, and you wouldn't want uh, ev- even in that scenario, uh, potentially the vehicle is deemed to be available. Uh, so what what you should do is the employee should park the car at the employer's business premises oh, I see. Uh, and hand the keys over. Uh, and the employer should have a, a written and enforced policy prohibiting private use by the employee during that time. That period, yeah. Uh, and if those conditions are satisfied, then the ATO uh, will most likely accept that the car uh, isn't available for private use. Yeah, yeah. Well, they couldn't uh, deem otherwise if it's, uh, as you said, keys have been handed over, it's at the business premises, etc. Yeah, well, y- yeah. you'd be surprised how strictly they interpret these things. There, uh. There's been cases where the employee uh, will park the car, uh, drive to the airport, long-term parking, yep. then park the car and uh, fly to to Europe and keep the, the car keys uh, in the bottom of the bag? In the so, bottom of the bag, yeah, and yeah. Uh, the ATO says, well, the, you know, that car was available well, for, for you to use. You could have flown home from Paris and driven it around <laughs> yeah, anytime yeah, you exactly. wanted. <laughs> uh, and so actually some uh, airport car parking have even got uh, uh, class rulings issued by the ATO. So, really? Yeah, so for example in Melbourne there's uh, Andrews Airport parking uh, and they have something called a, a bailment agreement uh, so if you if you park there under a uh, that particular agreement, uh, then you've you've got that certainty that uh, the ATO has looked into it and yep. they've said well if you do that then uh, the car's not will accept that the car's not available. Isn't it interesting? Yeah. So there must have been enough cases for that to be worthwhile pursuing. Getting that uh, what did you call it? Bailment agreement. Uh, a bailment agreement. Well, yes. Yeah. There's there's another airport in Sydney that. I can't quite recall the name of that's got a, a similar uh, ruling okay, issue. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, worth perhaps into that's if you... helpful for their business to be sure. able to say to their customers yeah. that, yeah, we potentially get you a better FBT treatment. Yes, <laughs> it's interesting. And having cars being such a popular FBT item, of course. Um, mm. But it'd be interesting, though, when practitioners have clients that do a lot of travel, have a car and do any of these arrangements. Yeah, good good clue. Yeah. Mention to them, look, if you're in Sydney or Melbourne or anywhere out there airport that has this bailment agreement, could be worth looking into. Mm. All right. Yeah, so, so look, now I think we've covered when uh, a car fringe benefit arises, arises and, yep. and when it doesn't arise. Yep. Uh, so I thought perhaps next we could look at how to value that that fringe benefit. Could I just jump in with a quick question first, Simon? Yeah, yeah. sure, um, David. Are there any exempt car benefits out there? Uh, yes. Well, there's there's actually the one that I talked about in the last podcast is one that mm. comes to mind, uh, and that's an exemption for uh, particular types of uh, cars and and non cars. Uh, that uh, utes, panel vans are the the, the typical examples uh, where they're used uh, in a particular exempt way. So those listeners that might recall uh, last uh, last podcast, I, I talked about uh, there needs to be uh, use limited to uh, to work related travel, uh, travel between home and work, and and back again uh, and other uh, private use that is minor incidental and infrequent yeah yeah uh, and there was of course that uh, draft uh, practical compliance guideline that mm-hmm. that looked into the safe harbor uh, provisions of just what is meant by minor and frequent uh, and irregular that was a PCG 2016 slash 10. That's I believe, and if, yeah, if listeners right. want to listen to that uh, tax wrap podcast, one six three was the last one. It's the first segment in that uh, in that podcast. Okay, um, you were saying, Simon? Uh, 
Yeah, so the, the statutory formula method, uh, that's one of two methods to value a car fringe benefit. It's, it's the most uh, popular method. I think it's over 70%. Is it? Right. The ATO statistics tell us. Yep. Uh, and that's, I think, predominantly because it's, it's relatively uh, simple to apply and it, it doesn't have uh, onerous record-keeping requirements okay. uh, in terms of you know, maintaining a valid logbook yep. that uh, the operating cost method uh, has. Yep. Yep. Uh, so the, the statutory formula method, uh, as the name suggests, uh, there's a particular formula, uh, A times B times C, uh, uh, etc., uh, that if you work out what each of those components of the formula are uh, and plug them into the formula, that will give you the, the taxable value. Right. So the first element of the formula, the, the A in the formula, is the, the base value of the vehicle. Uh, now, that's really important to get right because... Uh, Typically, you'll calculate it in the year that you acquire the car uh, and then you carry it forward in your work papers and not look at it too closely. Yeah, so, yeah. so if you make a mistake uh, in year one, you're, you're potentially making a mistake in you know, years two, three, four, etc. Yes, all the way down, yeah. Uh, so what you don't want to do is look to the, uh, the depreciation worksheet and just take that that amount uh, and treat that as the base value for FBT purposes uh, because, well, you'd be excluding a number of things that should be included. For example, uh, GST. Ah, of course. Uh, so for FBT, uh, you're, you're looking at the GST uh, inclusive values uh, even when the employer is is registered for for gst okay uh luxury car tax is is another one uh for depreciation your uh, your depreciation total depreciation claim is limited to the uh the depreciation cost limit the, the, yeah yep uh but there, there's no no equivalent for fbt no, if, if no. you buy a car for hundred fifty thousand, then uh using the statutory formula method uh the taxable value is, is going to be calculated by reference to that. Yeah, because uh, when, you, when you consider fringe benefit is in lieu of or instead of cash salary. So, of course, the other costs that are involved, you know, GST, whatever else, mm. um, needs to be taken in, uh, taken into account. Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, dealer and delivery charges is, is oh, another yeah, thing right. to include and, and non-business accessories. So... Uh, Obviously, what's business and non-business uh, will depend on the the business of the employer. Yes, but, that's true. Uh, generally speaking, uh, a stereo or customised wheels or personalised number plates, th those would <laughs> uh, certainly in most cases be non-business yeah, yeah. accessories. Uh, there are some things that you can exclude, though. So if you're not, then you're, you're paying too much FBT. Right. Uh, make sure you exclude registration costs, uh, stamp duty on transfer, uh, and uh, business accessories added after acquisition. Okay. Yep. So any any I don't know what business accessory say a, a vice that you bolt onto the back of the yeah like I suppose tray. A, a tow bar tow or, bar, or yeah. a, a radio uh, a two way radio, radio yep. thanks yep. yeah uh, again. It, it depends on what the uh, the special needs of the business yeah, yeah. are. Okay, something to keep in mind. Yeah. Now, now once the car has been held for for full FBT years, uh, so looking now at the twenty eighteen FBT year, uh, you should be asking yourself: Was the car acquired on or before thirty one March twenty thirteen? Right. Uh, then the employer can reduce that base value by one third. Uh, uh, so effectively, the, that's a concession that the ATO allows, and that will reduce the. Okay, so uh, after FBT after payable. four full FBT years, take a third off. Yep, that's okay. right. The, I didn't know that. The, tra the trap is to remember that it has to be four full FBT yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if you come in in June, well, just you got to wait till the next May. Uh, no. Well, uh, in uh, uh, remember FBT exactly right. Yep. FBT and then is a different okay. different year. Yep. But yeah, that's right. All right. Excellent. Uh, 
Now, once you've uh, calculated the the base value, the the a in the formula, mm-hmm. uh, you multiply that by a statutory fraction or a statutory percentage, if if you prefer to call it that. Uh, now, you you might remember that there used to be these these different bands depending on. Uh, how many kilometres the, oh, the car yes. was driven. Yeah, yeah, and the, uh, which resulted in the unfortunate result was that pe- people would sometimes drive a lot more just to get up to that next band of uh, yeah, Ks. Yeah, yeah I've, I've, I've heard stories of uh, employers sending uh, <laughs> emails around to... to uh, those get out of the were, road! Yeah, <laughs> Uh, which obviously I think is not uh, really a great thing for... Not the, the environment. And for not the for environment. A, yeah. and, uh, so I think quite sensibly they... Uh, uh, got rid of those bands and replaced it with a, a flat 20%, regardless yep. of kilometres driven. Yep. Uh, however, one thing to keep in mind is these these new rules, the flat 20%, was brought in for cars provided on or before 10th of May 2011. Uh, mm. And some employers uh, may still have some older vehicles oh, right. uh, that may still be subject to the uh, the old rules the yep. the four different uh, statutory fractions uh, those employers need to be mindful of uh, yeah has anything been done to to vary the uh, the arrangement under which that car is being provided uh, so if, you know has they have they paid out a lease residual or refinanced the car oh, right. uh, yeah potentially they've then triggered uh, triggered these new rules of, okay. of the flat twenty percent. So if it's not exactly down the same arrangements as it initially it, it started on, mm-hmm. it's got to toe the line to the new rules. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. So eventually we'll we'll find all vehicles subject Under to the the, same. the, the flat twenty percent. Yep. But potentially there are still uh, employers on on the old rules, and uh, it, particularly if their employees are dra- travelling. You know, significant numbers of kilometres. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then uh, that's an opportunity to reduce the FBT payable. Yep, exactly. Uh, so then you look at uh, the days in the FBT year that a car fringe benefit is provided, uh, and also the number of days in the FBT year. Uh, I don't quite recall if it's a a leap year or not, but uh, <laughs> make sure you, you double-check just to get that uh, formula exactly right. Uh, now, days in the FBT year that a car fringe benefit is provided, uh, that's referring to what I was talking about earlier. Yeah. Was it actually used for private purposes? Was it deemed oh. to be available for private use because yep. it was, for example, garaged near the employee's home? Uh, so... By reducing that number of days, uh, you know, when the employee is travelling or perhaps it's in for repairs or uh, perhaps, unfortunately, they've uh, had an extended stay in hospital or uh, whatever the case may be, that uh, if the number of days that the car fringe benefit is deemed to be provided can yep. be reduced, then under the statutory formula method, the uh, taxable value of the fringe benefit will be reduced. Okay. Right. Uh, now, the, the final element of the formula, uh, a way to reduce the uh, the taxable value, is a recipient's payment that the employee... Or pa- puts in to... For, pays for fuel or that sort of thing. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah okay. pays for fuel is, is a great example. Yep. Uh, most car expenses uh, that the employee pays for will... will count as the recipient's payment and reduce that taxable value and uh, the FBT payable. But there are a few to just be mindful of. Uh, If we're talking about road and bridge tolls, for example, uh, e-tag, car parking fines, speeding fines, uh, non-business accessories that the employee has chosen to add, these sorts of payments won't reduce the recipient's payment. No, okay. Uh, but if you're talking about you know, fuel and repairs, then, uh, yeah, that that's a great way to reduce the o- Operational costs, value. I suppose, you look for, if it's keeping the vehicle on the road. Yes. Okay. Uh, now, the contribution must be made before the lodgement of the FPT return. So okay. uh, make sure you get the timing right 
as well. Yep, yep. And does the employer have to provide the employer with a, a you know, receipts or some kind of evidence of uh, that expenditure? Yes, the, they, they do. Hmm. Uh, though there are some uh, concessional rules for certain types of expenditure. Uh, so generally speaking, the expenses must be substantiated. Yep. Uh, but if we're talking about uh, petrol expenses or small expenses, uh, and small is, for these purposes is defined as under $10 each and under $200 in total, right. uh, then you don't need to provide uh, a receipt from from the, the petrol station, for okay. example. Yep. But you still need to provide a uh, an estimate and a declaration. Okay. So a reasonable, a reasonable estimate that you've signed, yeah, this is what I spent on car fresheners or... No. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> you would spend right. more than $200 on fuel, I would imagine, in a, in a, in a year. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, and there's also undocumentable expenses. Undocumentable. But, and th- that's defined as something that uh, will typically... You won't be given a receipt for. Huh. Uh, Can't think of an example. Uh, yeah, perhaps car parking. But maybe you put money in the, the oh, meter. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's true, yep. And... Uh, yeah, you, you don't get... It, the timer goes down and yeah. to nothing and you've you've paid for it, but yeah, 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 that makes sense. Is there any um, GST that you need to be aware of with the employee contributions? Yes, great point. Ah, yeah, I forgot about that. Uh, mm. <laughs> it's <laughs> a tax man talking there. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, income tax and GST, of course, because the, the employee uh, contribution uh, is income to the uh, employer. Oh, yeah. Uh, and... Uh, GST, uh, assuming now that the employer is registered for GST, one mm. eleventh uh, of of that uh, needs to be remitted to the ATO on the the business activity mm. statement. Yep. So, uh, th- one of the things that the ATO has actually identified as uh, something that they're going to be looking at more is uh, employers who have claimed that there's no FPT to pay because the because of a recipient's contribution, yep. uh, has reduced the taxable value to nil, but they're not included that recipient's contribution as income on their tax return, yep. or uh, you know paid the GST uh, through their business activity yeah, statements. Yeah, that's amazing. It's, it's, they're just caught out by that little uh, detail, which might not be such a little detail if you have a, a larger company with a lot of cars and a lot of employees. Yes. That's yeah. interesting. I find uh, often with employers who uh, are owner-operated businesses, it's the, the, the owner-director yep. who's being provided with a car, uh, they'll often do a recipient's contribution via a journal entry, uh, which is uh, perfectly okay. The ATO's confirmed that. Yep. Uh, it could, of course, be used in the case of a, an arm's length Employee, but in practice, I've found it's it's often more that, often that uh, uh, scenario. That's a director shareholder who's uh, who's doing it that way. Yep, yep, fair enough, makes sense. I think unless there's any questions about the statutory formula method, perhaps we'll move on to finish yep. off with the uh, the operating cost method. Okay, which is, thanks. Of course, the, yes, please. The other of the two methods, the uh, the thirty percent uh, uh, method. Exactly right. Uh. If if seventy percent are using the statutory formula method, uh, it must mean <laughs> that. 30% are using the operating cost method. Uh, and for those 30%, it's probably because their employees are, uh, are dri- using the vehicles for a substantial business use uh, uh, percentage yep. uh, because the operating cost method applies that business use percentage to the, the operating costs of the vehicle. Right to determine the the taxable value. So the, the higher the, the business use, uh, the, you know, the more the car was used for business trips rather than personal trips, uh, the uh, the lower the FBT uh, payable. So uh, what's a business trip? Uh, well, it has to be exclusively for business purposes. So if uh, a trip has a dual private and business purpose, uh, that's considered a private trip. Uh, right. The ATO has been quite quite strict on that. Uh, you know, earlier I talked about, uh, sorry, not earlier, but in the the uh, previous podcast, uh, a diversion to pick up a newspaper or, or drop your children that's off right. at school. Yep, that's right. Uh, so going back to those examples, that would be considered by the ATO 
in the context of the operating cost method, a, uh, a, a private trip, not a... And so off the table. Not a, off the table. Okay. Uh, some people think that having company signage on the car will make uh, make every trip a, a business trip. It's it's advertising, advertising yeah, right. the, the business. <laughs> uh, but no, no, unfortunately, that's not how the uh, the ATO views things. Okay. So to to establish what the business use percentage is, uh, you need to keep a logbook for 12 weeks that makes note of the, the odometer readings and the the distance travelled and and what the nature of the the trip was. Uh, so you know, don't just write uh, business trip. No, uh, no. Yeah, <laughs> include a bit of detail. Okay. Uh, you know, for example, the, the the name of the client. The client. They see it. Yeah. Just a view of construction of this or whatever they've done there. And I know that there's a um, a few app phone apps that can uh, take care of all of that distance and. Uh, yeah, and that, that's jot right. In yeah, all, you, yeah linked doing. up to your your GPS yep. and. Uh, there's no official uh, you know, template that the ATO provides, as, as, but as long as it's got all the information... Or certain information if, provided, yeah. Yeah, if you do it through uh, through an app or if you just write it down by hand on yep, a piece yep. of paper, as long as it has all the the information needed to, to calculate the you know, the business use percentage, yeah, then yep. uh, that's okay by the ATO. Good. So it just needs the date of the journey, the odometer reading at the beginning and the end... Uh, and a description of the the purpose of right. the journey. Okay. The, there was one last thing I, I wanted to mention sure. about the the logbook uh, is that the ATO's view is that the employer should also take into account any uh, variation in the the use of the vehicle. Uh, so, for example, if a logbook was kept in year one, uh, where the employee was travelling uh, extensively uh, every day, uh, had a business use percentage up in the 90s, yep. uh, and the logbook, once kept for 12 weeks, is valid for five FBT years. Uh, and so we fast forward to year four, and that employee has got a promotion and is now uh, you know, stays behind their desk. Drives the desk more than the car. Yeah, <laughs> exactly yeah. right, drives okay. the desk more than the car. Yeah. Uh, and in reality, they're... they're car is really used substantially less than that 90% that the... Uh, that the first the, year indicated? Yeah. The, right. the ATO's view is that it is not appropriate to, to continue to use that, that 90%. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So you have to do, do another logbook, keep another record, or uh, or depends on the case, I suppose? Yeah. You could, you could do another logbook, uh, or you could just... Uh, you know, be mindful of it and consider have the logbook as one factor that you consider, and oh, yeah. the updated uh, employment details as another, and uh, and and so on, and yeah, come yeah, to a, yeah. a reasonable reduction based can, on on, uh, on that scenario. Yeah. I can imagine the time when, um, with as you mentioned, GPS etc., when you get uh, data feeds from people's phones. The ATO will know when you're not travelling so much because it's all the readings. I mean, I've got to imagine all the data matching that they could do uh, in the future. Yeah, anyway. I, th- I think one of the uh, the themes of uh, FBT this year in terms of what the ATO is is doing and what they're looking out for mm-hmm. is is uh, just continuing to get better at, at data matching and data right. analytics and uh, sharing data with... Uh, other uh, departments and yeah, yeah, government yeah. agencies and, and so on. And uh, so you're, if you're doing the wrong thing, the uh, the chances of getting caught are higher than ever higher. before. So uh, well, one, one likes make to sure look you at, do the right thing. One likes to look at the other side of the same coin in, in that uh, you may be at a disadvantage that all the data may show that you actually are, are paying too much tax. I mean, let's, uh, let's hope for that future as well. <laughs> Though I'm not, I'm not so sure that the ATO will contact you if you're paying too much tax. You but do. maybe I'm not giving them enough no, credit. Okay. <laughs> okay, um, that's about it, I suppose. Uh, anything else to add, David? Or? No comments from me. Okay, that's good. Um, Simon, thank you very much for the session again. Um, it's uh, Your sessions are always very helpful and informative, and uh, our, li- our, re- our listeners do appreciate them. But thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Uh, listeners, um, that's the end of this segment. Please uh, stay tuned. And we're back. Thanks for joining us again. And uh, at uh, this segment, we have uh, with us Peter Adams, our Senior Tax Counsel. 
Hello, Peter. G'day, Steve. It's good to have you in the studio again. Uh, now, we've been talking about FBT with Simon Dorovich a little while ago, and uh, I know that you're, uh, you're up to speed with what uh, all things FBT, and uh, I think one thing that uh, can confuse some listeners, some people out there, is when is a fringe benefit? How does it come about? What is a fringe benefit, and how, how do you define that? Uh, yeah, well, our fringe benefit tax regime, of course, started way back in 1986 with 13 different categories of benefits. And normally the way we quantify and identify whether we have an FPT liability is to start off by saying, well, these are the fringe benefit in the first place. Right. And then we go to the next step of saying, well, what type of fringe benefit is it? And calculate the taxable value accordingly. Right, yeah. Um, so I just want to pause, I guess, today uh, with uh, what makes the benefit the fringe benefit in the first place. Okay. And yeah. in, in the early days, of course, it was replacing remuneration, wasn't it? it was a, a th- yeah, it was really just filling a gap in our tax law right. to serve as a bucket to trap the provision of benefits yeah, yep. and uh, impose a tax liability on employers yep. relevant to that. Okay, so how do we sort of clarify what's... Uh, well, the definition of fringe benefit um, goes for somewhere around three pages in the tax law. All right. Um, and it has probably two parts to it. One that we can describe as the positive limb, which tells you when something is a fringe benefit. Yep. And the second part that um, can best be described as a negative limb, that tells you when something is not a fringe benefit. Okay. Um, so if we start off with that, that first part. Uh, we see that uh, the fringe benefit definition starts off with trying to identify is it a benefit in the first place. Right, okay. Now, the word benefit is separately defined from the word fringe benefit. And a benefit is very broadly defined as any right, privilege, service or facility. So it's very, very broad. It is broad, yeah. Uh, And so the next step from then is to say, well, if it is a benefit, is it a fringe benefit? Uh, and here we start with trying to identify the relationship between the parties involved. Well, I, I just I, mean, I don't know whether you can add, if this is a, a dumb question or not, but it just occurred to me: why did the word "fringe" it seems like an it's like on it's on the edges? It's like something yeah, also. Yeah, I ran. think it was uh, in reference to it being outside of pure income, oh, okay, salary and okay. wages back in the day. Um, yeah, but it also has a connotation of it being a perk. Of sorts, okay. a remuneration perk. Yep, yep. Um, but if we look at that definitional framework of what is a fringe benefit, it requires a tripartite relationship between employer, right, employee, and employment. Ah, so okay. one of the first questions we ask then is, well, who is an employee? Now, employee extends itself to a current employee, yep, a future employee and also a past employee. Gosh. Uh, But there's a very important word that precedes the reference to employee. And it's basically referring to the fact that a benefit is a fringe benefit if it's provided to the employee. Uh, The employee. It doesn't say an employee. No, no. It says the employee. So in that particular case. Well, what it's trying to identify is this, that... If you provide benefits to employees at large, Um, rather than to a particular identifiable employee or employees, it cannot be a fringe benefit. (sighs) So that's the significance of the word the as opposed to and. And we've had some court judgments in this respect. Is that right? uh, Which uh, we now take as a precedent in our law that you cannot ever have a fringe benefit if benefits are provided to employees at large. I see, I see. And so, for example, where you may have an employee, employer, sorry, that provides things like gift cards and cinema tickets uh, to employees, and they do that, for example, through a mechanism of a staff social club or a staff social committee. So the employer provides the gift cards and the vouchers and the cinema tickets to the staff social committee who then in turn, in their wisdom, uh, decides to allocate that to a particular employee. Right. Now, what the employer does by doing it this way is to remove itself from providing a benefit to a particular employee Okay. rather than just providing it to employees at large. And, of course, that um, prevents 
the connotation attaching to that provision of benefits to employees at large as being a fringe benefit. Really? Because from the employer's perspective, it's not to a particular identifiable employee. It's to all. all. It's to employees at large. Amazing, yeah. And so that's the significance of the word the. Yep, That precedes the reference to employees. Gosh, we we all knew that words are very important in legislation, but the word the playing such a role. (laughs) Absolutely. So it's one of those things that we often overlook. Yep. Uh, because if we are able to say, well, it's not a benefit provided to a particular identifiable employee, mm. then it's not a fringe benefit in the first place. Okay. Uh, which takes That's... us completely outside the fringe benefit framework. Okay. Um, yeah. So that's often something that as practitioners, uh, perhaps we don't often uh, pay enough regard to. No, uh, no. To discern whether it's actually a fringe benefit in the first place. That's amazing. The second aspect of the equation is then to identify what if the benefit doesn't actually go to the employee, but it goes to the associate of the employee. Well, that still falls within the ambit of what a fringe benefit is. Oh, yeah. So associates, family members, relatives and the like. Yeah. What if the benefit is provided not to a family member, not to a relative, but to a friend of the employee? Well, if it's to a friend of the employee, there can only be a trigger point here if the friend uh, or the provision of the benefit to the friend is under arrangement between the employer and the employee to provide that benefit to the friend. To the third party, okay. The friend of the employee or yep. uh, the mate of the employee or someone said to me the other day, the homie of the employee <laughs> or the peeps of the employee. Um, you wouldn't expect to see that in the legislation. A, uh, <laughs> a fringe benefit. Okay. The, the other element of the equation, Steve, as to what makes it a fringe benefit is, of course, it must be provided by the employer. Right. Uh, but it also would be captured as a fringe benefit if it's not provided by the employer, but by an associate of the employer. Oh, it's going to so say it's like a, yeah, a related company or business. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What if it's by an independent third party that has no relationship with the employer? Well, if there's an arrangement between the employer yep. and the third party yep. to provide a benefit to the employee of the employer, it's still a fridge benefit. Okay. So if the employer says to the coffee shop across the road, Correct. give my people a cup of coffee on the morning, Correct. that's caught. Okay. That would be caught as right. well. What if the employer didn't know about it, Steve? What if the employer had no idea this was happening? Ah. Now, this happens quite commonly where you have employees with third-party relationships in the context of their jobs. Right. They have relationships with third-party suppliers, uh, and because they've built up a good rapport with the particular supplier, ah, yeah, that yeah. supplier might say to the individual employer, well, I'm sending you and your family off to the Gold Coast for holiday. Now, the employer has no idea this is happening. But it's all happens Would because it still be a fringe benefit because the suppliers say, "Oh, you're good, Blake. Well, you work for John Smith." Correct. Therefore. Okay. Is well, it? in the context of the fringe benefit definition, mm-hmm. it says even if the employer didn't know, but should have known, because ah. it happens in the context of his business operations. <laughs> right, right. It's still a fringe benefit. Ah, okay. So how do we protect ourselves against this somewhat unknown risk? Yep. Uh, the idea says it would suffice if you have an internal policy. Uh, within your business that says no employee will receive third-party benefits without the express authority and approval of the employer. Ah, So if it does happen outside of that policy, it's a breach of the policy, uh, the employer will still be protected. Right. So we need to have those policies in place uh, to prevent an occurrence of, of this type. It's just sort of just, as a, just in case kind of provision just in the Just in case. Policies. And the idea suggests, okay. yes, the policy is one aspect, yep. but they need to also be continuous monitoring and policing of the policy well, I suppose. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. So, it's interesting. So, yeah. It's interesting. It's a, so there, there's what is a fringe benefit? When does it apply? When does it not apply? That's much, most, so much more than what we usually think Absolutely, of. Absolutely, because yeah. the first thing we try and do is try and classify the benefit into some sort of type. Yeah, yeah. But really, we get to a point before that where we actually test whether it's a fringe benefit in the first place. In fact, Peter, I mean, this is FPT season sort of happening around yes. this time of year. If practitioners went back 
and went over the situations of their yes. clients, they may well find that there are some Absolutely. of these situations. That's amazing. Absolutely. And the last element of this positive lib we're talking about yep. is that it can only be a fringe benefit if the benefit is provided in respect of the employment of the employee. Ah, the third, the employment. Employee, Correct. employer, employment. Correct. Okay, yeah, yeah. So what we're trying to tease out here is you might have an individual that wears two hats, one as a shareholder and one as an employee. Yep. If the provision of the benefit is in respect of their shareholding relationship with a the company, ah, then right. it's not a fringe benefit. Okay, that's Even though they bear the status of an employee. Yeah, yeah, in so, another respect. Yeah. Correct. Okay. So the fact that the benefit is provided to you as an employee doesn't make it a fringe benefit. Yep. You still need to say that the benefit is provided to you as the employee, but in respect of to your employment. employment. Right. Yeah. Not, not, that's right. Which is fill the, in the final fill in the, the gap. final piece of the puzzle. Yeah, amazing. And so that's our positive look. Yep. A negative limb then teases out certain provisions of benefits that simply would not be fringe benefits in the first place. Okay. So this is the negative limb. Yep. So even though we have that connection between employer, employee and employment, mm -hmm. it may still not be a fringe benefit. And the specific carve-outs right. in this definition of fringe benefit under the negative limb, the first carve-out is salary and wages. So... Salary and wages is specifically excluded from being a fringe benefit. Now oh, of course. Say, well, well, that's kind of obvious. Naturally, yeah. But it's income taxable. Right. But the interesting thing about this is the definition of the word benefit that we teased out right at the beginning yep. said that any right, service, privilege, or facility is a benefit, which means salary and wages qualify as a benefit because oh. nobody wants to work for free. So. No, no. That's um, <laughs> but it's carved out from being a fringe benefit. Right. Okay, so it's a benefit, but not a fringe benefit. Okay, Correct. okay, okay. Specifically because yeah, yeah. of the negative limb, carving yeah. it out. Right. And a second carve out there is relevant to individuals that are shareholders of companies, but mm -hmm. also employees. Yeah. And they might receive a loan from this company. Now, under the income tax framework, there's something called Division 7A. Right, that's right. That says if the individual receives a loan from the private company, that will translate itself into an unfranked deemed dividend yep. for that recipient shareholder. That's right. But bearing but, in mind that that shareholder is also an employee, uh, so under the fringe benefit tax framework, it might in turn also be a loan fringe benefit. That's right. Yeah. And as yeah. a result, will trigger FPT. Now, some people say that can't happen because then it's double tax. You can't have FPT and income tax oh, yeah. out of the same type of scenario. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can, and it's not really double tax. Why? Why? Because it's two different taxpayers. Right. And two different taxes. Uh, okay. So, yeah. save for a specific carve-out right. in the definition of fringe benefit, you could have had this duplication of tax result. Okay. What's the carve-out? The carve-out says if it's a Division 7A loan, yep. then Division 7A supersedes fringe benefits. Ah, okay. So they so a Division 7A loan yep. will never be a loan fringe benefit. No. Because okay. it's carved out from being a fringe benefit in the to first place. To be a 7A thing. So they, get, they take the best, best of the Correct. both of them. Okay, fair enough. Exam benefits are also um, not fringe benefits. So, for right. example, there's a few exemptions under the fringe benefit tax legislation. Yeah, yeah. Laptops are exempt. If it's primarily for work use, yep. you have the $300 minor benefit exemption. That's right. A whole host of exemptions. The point is, if it's an exempt benefit, then it's not a fringe benefit in the first place. Right, right. Okay. Good. That's a so really carved exempt out. benefits are carved out from actually being fringe benefits. Yeah, yeah. It's yep. not like the fringe benefit uh, regime captures it first and then kicks it out. Oh, no. Just it's not a fringe benefit. Not even allowed in the, in the club. Place. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the other one that's specifically excluded. It's benefits provided under employee share schemes. Right. Also specifically excluded from being a fringe benefit. Okay, yep. Okay? And then superannuation contributions. Oh, that of the course. employer makes for and behalf of the employee yep. is also excluded from being a fringe benefit. You're talking about just the straight SG contributions or not anything? Just SG not just the SG contributions, okay. salary sacrifice contributions. Oh, okay. Because well. yep. if you salary sacrifice pre tax, it's as if the employer is providing the contribution. Mm, yep. Hence, this exclusion would not trigger an FBT liability. Okay. However, the exclusion for superannuation contributions mm -hmm. are limited to superannuation contributions for and behalf of the employee himself or herself. Okay. It doesn't extend itself as an exclusion to contributions for and behalf of associates 
of the employee. Oh, okay, okay. So yeah. if you have an employee that seeks to salary sacrifice an additional $10,000, yeah. not for his benefit, but into the superannuation account of his spouse, right? then that would not be excluded from FPT. And that might attract FPT and liability. might attract FPT indeed. Okay. And so we need to be conscious of this because now that we have a $25,000 superannuation contribution cap, right? someone might say to themselves, well, I want to put in another 10000 by way of salary sacrifice. Uh, but I can't because if I do, I'm already sitting at $25,000. Oh, yeah, yeah. So what I might do is salary sacrifice, but I'd put it in my spouse's account. And so that deals with a cap issue. Yep. But what yep. it does throw up inadvertently is also an FPT liability right, yeah. as a result. But you might, if you've gone over the cap, it's, you know, you've got to be hit somewhere. Yeah, well, yeah. that's it. <laughs> so so um, what this throws up is that this framework of what makes something a fringe benefit in the first place yep. is often overlooked. Yeah, of course. And so yeah. we need to have our starting point there. And it's only after we've identified the benefit as a fringe benefit that we then say what type of fringe benefit. Okay, start with all the usual Correct. workings out. Okay, Correct. yeah, excellent. And so it's often something that I find we as practitioners don't pay due regard to mm. um, uh, when we look at fringe benefit tax uh, and try and identify an FPT liability and quantify it for our employers that we service, yeah, yeah. Uh, we don't often stop to think, well, is it a fringe benefit in the first place? No. Well, and and as, you, as we said before, you find that out for some clients, they might be very grateful Absolutely. for you taking the time. And that's really what I wanted to canvas today. Yeah, so fantastic, Peter. Well, thank you very much. Very informative as usual. Thanks for your time. And listeners, please stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to this final segment of the Tax Wrap podcast. Um, now, we all know that single-touch payroll is coming. It's already here for some employers. Uh, but from the 1st of July 2018, all employers with 20 or more employees are required to report through single-touch payroll. And um, the government recently announced that single-touch payroll, or STP, uh, will be extended to all employers from the 1st of July next year. Um, now, I was um, lucky enough to be able to give, uh, give a call to uh, John Shepherd, who's the Assistant Commissioner at the ATO and also the Program Lead for Single Touch Payroll, uh, just to answer some questions. Uh, John, what is Single Touch Payroll and um, what can you say? What does it mean for tax professionals? Look, so Single Touch Payroll is a reporting change for employers um, using their natural business processes of paying staff um, to report that information about their employees to the tax office each payday. Um, they'll need to report to us payments such as salary and wages, um, their pay-as-you-go withholding amounts yep. for each employee okay. and their superannuation amounts for each employee as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and um, it's been launched a little while ago. How's it progressing? How's STP progressing? And what's the latest update you can give to listeners? Uh, well, it starts from the 1st of July for employees with 20 or more employees. So it starts 1st of July this year. Right. Um, and so far, we've actually had some um, payroll providers who are ready and, and have started sending files through each payday, okay. or their employers have been able to start sending files to us each payday. Yeah. Um, we've been working closely with the software industry, and so a large number of them are, are getting their products ready and right. are starting to communicate to their clients about that readiness um, so that they can come on later this year. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's not long to go when you think about it. 1st of July, so... Um, it's coming up quickly. Um, it is indeed, and we've just passed the headcount date. So the 1st of April was a key date for STP oh, in terms of determining you know, the 20, whether or not an employer had 20 employees at that date, yep. and that determines whether or not they need to start reporting from July this year. Exactly, yeah. Look, um, we've seen some commentary online about uh, uh, single-touch payroll deferrals and readiness dates. Can you expand on that for the listeners? Um, sure. Look, there's, there's a couple of different kinds of deferrals. We recognise it's pretty complex, um, process payroll and, and we want to make sure we don't disrupt the pay process because that's most important to, to employees. It's right. Um, but, but, you know, with that complexity in payroll and some of the larger payrolls in particular, some have indicated they'll need a bit of extra time to get ready. Right. So, um, so those software providers have been able to approach us on behalf of their clients if their products either not quite going to be ready by July yep. or if it is going to be ready but they think their employers will need a bit of time to, tra to come across. Oh, yeah. um, they've, they've actually requested deferrals and, and also they'll have different start dates depending on that complexity and where they've got to. Also, 
um, an employer can come to us directly and also there's information on our website about that, but an employer can come and request um, some extra time. Yeah. Again, depending on their circumstances, um, we'll actually look at that and, and we're fairly flexible about that so that we make sure that you know, people with different starting points can still get there and get there in a good way as well. Yeah, yeah. I believe the ACO has also uh, said that the penalties will be sort of, you know, looked at on a case-by-case, case. Uh, which is fair enough. Oh, absolutely, and that's an important message. This first year is a transition year from um, eighteen nineteen, and we really want to make sure people have a good start here and we want to encourage people to start reporting, um, not be fearful of penalties. Our approach, we very much help and assist a bit like when GST started, Yeah, yeah. making sure that we're giving people the right assistance. We're having a look at their files and giving them feedback. Yeah. Um, there is also an approach for this first year around exemptions, um, particularly for things like um, seasonal. So those employers who perhaps, as at the 1st of April, just had a peak in their workforce, which oh. took them over the 20, yep. they could apply um, to not start reporting this year as well in that circumstance. Or if their internet's um, not up to scratch and they okay. can therefore can't submit to us each payday because their internet's not good enough, yep, yep. that'd be another cause to come to us. So we just encourage people to approach us in those circumstances. Yeah, a good point, especially this time of year. I mean, horticulturalists will be uh, having a lot of uh, workforce now and then it'll drop off. So, yeah, good. Uh, absolutely. That is that is one of the key examples we see, you yeah. know, of that peak period. And it yeah. just depends when that falls for you. And it might be just unlucky that it's around that 1st of April date. So we are flexible around those yeah, things. Yeah. So look, what, what can um, tax professionals expect to see in the portals? Start with the um, tax agent in the portal will get if their client is the employer, they will get a, a kind of roll, a summary view of the lodgements of STP their employers done each payday, which means it'll be the rolled up amounts for um, salary and wages and tax for that period, um, and they won't get the detailed view of that employer's submissions. That'll sit with the employer's payroll. Okay. But if their if their client is the individual employee, um, what they'll see is that progressive view. Um, reported by the employer of the salary and wage amounts and the um, tax amounts. Sort of what you would see, like a progressive payment summary coming together. Yeah, and then at the end of the year, they'll they'll get an indication that the that that um, report's been finalised. It'll be signalled tax ready. Yeah, which means it'll be available then for them to pre-fill into the employee's tax return when they okay. go to do it. Just just you just mentioned payment summaries. It's something that's also been brought up a lot from um, our members and probably from our members' clients. Um, go, does going through single touch payroll mean that no payment summary will be required at the end of the year? Um, certainly for all that information, most information on, on current end of year payment series can be reported through single touch payroll and that includes at the end of the year the ability to put FBT amounts oh, yeah. and salary sacrifice amounts into STP. Right. So where the employer's done that and reported all the salary and wage information and tax um, allowances and the taxes etc, yep. they can um, finalise that at the end of the year in STP and then they no longer need to worry about the payment summary. So the ATO will take care of releasing that information into the pre-fill for the tax process. Yeah, um, and if the employee wants a copy of the payment summary or what they used to be a payment summary or group certificate for some of them, yep. um, they can come to the ATO to get a copy of that online. Okay, okay. Look, another another question that's coming up a lot within our industry and between our members is um, how the um, declarations to lodge and single-touch payroll work. How will that work? Um, so it's a bit like um, any other reporting. There is a need for a um, declaration for the employer to make a declaration that they've got a true and correct um, file to send in. Yep. Um, so um, they can authorise that if the agent's lodging on their behalf, um, they can certainly make that declaration through the um, to the tax agent. But at this stage, they will need to do that each time they submit um, an STP file. We are having a bit closer look at this one and seeing where there's a regular. Um, and, and fixed in a very even amount of pay that's done each payday. We are looking at that scenario and looking at whether we couldn't offer more of a standing declaration. Oh, yeah. um, and, and there's a bit more work we'll do around that and get some feedback around that process to see if we can make that more streamlined as yeah. well. Yeah, that'll really clean things up a bit if, if that comes off. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, look, finally, John, um, if we were to chat again in 12 months' time, what update would there be to STP? What would you be able to tell me about it? Um, look, I certainly hope in 12 months' time we'll have most of our um, substantial employers reporting under single-touch payroll each payday. That's about 72,000 employers in Australia. All right. Um, they'll have their products. We'll have a whole range of different STP products, um, STP ready, um, and we'll have that reporting hopefully starting to settle in and, and bed in and people will be having a good experience um, with the ATO around that reporting and their employees will be starting to see that information in 12 months' time yep. turning up in their tax returns you know, as a, you know, in replacement for the payment summaries. Yeah, exactly. Um, importantly, we'll hopefully also start to see some smaller businesses having taken on 
single touch payroll. They can voluntarily come into single touch payroll if they've got less than 20 employees at any time, oh, yeah. as long as they've got an STP product. Um, and we are planning for particularly the very micro businesses. Um, and again, this is subject to um, the STP extension to smaller employers is subject to legislation passing. Oh. The government has announced an intent to to extend this to smaller businesses as well, particularly around super guarantee visibility. Yeah, yeah. So um, this year we will be working closely with the industry to 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 see the development of some alternate reporting mechanisms, particularly for those very um, small. We would call them micro employers, less than five employees. Yeah, yeah. Um, to find ways, and then we found in a, a pilot we did last year that it was important to find other ways that people could report their STP to us other than payroll, right. and also the importance of making sure there was adequate low-cost or no-cost products that were simple enough yeah, yeah. for very small businesses to be able to do this in a way that was kind of part of, you know, still part of their pay process. Yeah, but for the, for the people, like, it's important for people that are like three, four, five people, the little shops or, you know, coffee shops, what have you, around the place. Um, yes. If they on board, why not? That'd be great. No, no, absolutely. And we want to make sure this is easy for them to do. So there's a bit of work to do um, throughout this year so that they can get ready and find a solution that will suit them um, in time for the start date for smaller, business, which is smaller businesses, which is 1 July 19. Well, that cleared up a few questions that I had about single-touch payroll for myself. Uh, I hope it did for you too. Just a reminder, we were just speaking then to John Shepherd, who is Assistant Commissioner at the ATO and also the Program Lead for Single-Touch Payroll. And that's the end of uh, Tax Wrap episode 164. Please listen again next time.